I got, got something I need to talk about this morning, and, but just as sure as I start into this, I, I got a feeling some of you are going to say, well, I don't think he's talking to me. That's okay. I may not be talking to you today, but this is just Sunday. You know. This is just Sunday. As the week progresses, as the month progresses, it may be some of what that's going to be spoken of this morning will be relevant to where you're living. I want to talk to you, talk to us about the mercy of God, the mercy of God, why there's still hope no matter what is because of the mercy of God. Now I want to ask a question, and I'd like to wait for a response. How many of you in the room this morning would say, and, and, and the, to, to remain seated is an okay answer. I'm just talking to the ones of you who when I say this, it's going to hurt you if you don't stand up. Okay, you'll be having to reach for the seatbelt, but and there isn't one. How many of you would have to say, "I don't know where I would be today if it had not been for the mercy of God impacting my life"? Just stand up. Now it's okay. Everybody doesn't have to stand up. The, I'm, I'm, those, you, you're ones who if you didn't stand, it would have hurt you, right? Because it's real to you. There's an old song years ago that was sung, Mercy Rewrote My Life. Mercy Rewrote My Life. Now I need to say to you, you clean up real good, you know, and clothed and in your right minds, in our right minds, by the grace of God, by the mercy of God. Okay, you can sit down. I, you, that, that's your testimony, one of your testimonies this morning. I think that's good for us to see sometimes because really we, we can give other impressions um, by how normal we are now how normal looking we are now, how calm the seas seem to be right now. But it's just amazing how so often here at Alamo City, the folks, we're lots of folks that will come through and visit and, and end up being in other places, which is, which is just, that's just the way it is supposed to be as the Lord leads. But it's interesting how it seems like ones who end up staying around here are, are ones who are no stranger to heartache who are no stranger to the dark side, no stranger to seasons in which if God hadn't gotten me through, I wouldn't have made it. And we can look at each other and kind of see that look and recognize that familiarity in each other's faces and voices from time to time. There's always hope, folks, listen. And you know it, you know it. If, if his mercy has impacted your life and rescued you and brought you through and done things in your life that, that no man could do, that you couldn't do for yourself, that people couldn't do for you, but God just somehow had mercy on you, you know this to be true. There is always hope, no matter what, because of the mercy of God. There's always hope no matter what, because of the mercy of God. Now, I want us to look back this morning for, for a little bit at the life of a man who had a remarkable calling upon his life, like some of you who may have at an early age realized that there was something that God had in mind for you to do and there was maybe your parents spoke it to you or you were, you were in a youth group and the Lord just seemed to make it real vivid to you that there was something that he had for you to do and, and, um, and that dream and that vision uh, stirred up inside of you and, has, and kept going for a long time but 
But, but maybe it has come to be that as time has passed, something of that, of that early vision and that early dream, that early sense of, of God's plan for my life has, has dimmed somewhat, has diminished somewhat. Maybe it's been just because of the passage of time and nothing dramatic seemed to happen. But, but maybe, maybe it could, have be, could be because you have a sense that there were some choices that you made, some steps that you took, some decisions that you made that you just had no business stepping into. You had no business partnering with in a relationship or whatever it would be. And, and what has caused there to be a, a real loss of hope within you is the sense that you missed God, that you, you, you broke you broke your agreement with the Lord, his nearness to you that at one time was so vivid and so real because of something that you did has caused there, that's caused there to be a distance between you and him. And so you can wonder, is, is any of that that he, that he said to me, is there any of that in the early days that, that I thought would be the future of my life? Is there any of that still good? Is any of that still possible because of, because of what I've done? Hang on to this verse. Hang on to this verse. Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. Actually, it's two verses, 4 and 5. We're on our way to the Old Testament, but note these. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He rescued us. He drew us out of the muck and mire and slop that we were in, out of the bondage that we were in. He drew us up out of that and didn't just set us on a rock somewhere or leave us in dry ground. He drew us. Here's what that word, he saved us. It means he drew us up out of that and drew us unto himself. He drew it, drew me up and out of, and he drew me into his embrace. He saved us. not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but he saved us according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration, by the washing of the new birth that we receive in Jesus Christ and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, which he poured out, whom he poured out richly upon us through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's his heart his heart of mercy for you, for me, no matter what station we may be in the continuum of our lives. His heart for you is mercy. He, he rescued us in his mercy, by means of his mercy, because of his mercy, and he sustains us. He keeps us going because of his mercy. Not because we've all of a sudden started doing everything right or we've all of a sudden got these, this brand new kind of energy and a whole new set of abilities to do everything right and have everything all figured out. It, it's still his mercy that we need every single hour of every single day and night of our lives. He saved us. He rescued us by his mercy. Now here's a definition for mercy from this biblical word elias, translated mercy. It means pity toward the miserable and afflicted, joined with a desire to relieve them. He's saying his heart for mankind, his heart for you and me means that he has pity toward us in our miserable and afflicted times. And that is joined with a desire to get us out of there, to relieve that. His heart of mercy. He, he doesn't, folks, this is so important. Jesus doesn't become something different the older you grow in the Lord. Or the more I've been a Christian, 20 years, 30 years, five years, five months, you don't grow out of the need for Jesus to have mercy on your soul. 
We don't ever get so mature. We don't ever get so biblically astute. We don't ever get so spiritual that we're ever going to outgrow our need to cry out that same cry that Bartimaeus cried out on the streets of Jericho all those days ago, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Folks, if you'll let that live in your heart and you'll understand that is, that is a welcome sign. On that crowded day in Jericho, when all those people were around Jesus and that one poor blind beggar just kept shouting that out and shouting that out and shouting that out, God stopped in his tracks and said, call him to me. And then do you know what he said? You know what Jesus said to Bartimaeus? The same thing he may be saying to you and me today. He said to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus, it seemed like I'd, that was an obvious question, but the Lord wanted him to answer it. And Bartimaeus answered by saying, Lord, I want to regain my sight. I want to be able to see again. Evidently, he had seen before and lost his sight. I want to see again. And then Jesus said, you, you get up and go your way, for your faith has saved you. Your faith has rescued you. Well, what, what were the dimensions of his faith? you got to look at that passage. Well, how was he showing faith? I tell you, he just did two things. He just kept hollering and kept hollering and kept hollering, and kept hollering, and what was he hollering? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He didn't shut up with his cry, and then when it came, when Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? He answered the question specifically. He answered the question. And Jesus would say, even, even, the, even the cry, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, that was faith. And then saying back to Jesus, here's what I need you to do for me. That was faith in the heart of the Lord. And the Lord said, it's your faith that saved you. Folks, listen, we, 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 got to, we got to stop thinking that the Lord intends for us to get so mature and get so spiritual and get so full of church that we can start handling some stuff on our own. He says, it's the children, the attitude of the children, the heart of a child that gets the kingdom. The kingdom isn't words, but the kingdom is power. So if we're going to experience the power of the kingdom, there's a part of us going to need to stay like a child. And the part of that, that needs to, of us that needs to stay like a child is we're realizing that we can't figure things out and we don't know how to do stuff and we don't know what the next step is and we're not, and, and we're not playing a game that we do. You'd be like a child and you just know that every hour of every day and night that you and I live, we are going to need him to have pity on the places where we're miserable or the places where we're suffering, and then we're to know that he has a desire to get us out of that, to fix that, to handle that. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. And inseparably a part of that word hope is hope in the mercy of God. It doesn't matter how long it's been going on. It doesn't matter what it is. There's still hope as long as there is still the mercy of God. Now, I specifically want to address those of you who may be struggling with this thing. I've blown it. I've messed up too bad for me to ever be all that the Lord may have wanted me to be in the beginning. Now, when we, when we get to believe in that, here's what we automatically start doing. We automatically are open to less than God's best. We automatically begin to consider the lesser options.
options because we've become convinced that the greater option, the greater goal is no longer within my reach. That's no longer a part of my destiny because of the mess I've made, because of a choice I've made. Now, there can be some things lost, but folks, listen, the God who promised you, the God who called you has not been surprised by any choice you ever made. If he called you, if he chose you, if he spoke a dream into your heart, a longing within your soul, something inside of you, he knew when he spoke that, not only what we're capable of, but what we would do. And here's the good news. There is still hope no matter what because of the mercy of God. Now let that in. Let that in. Let that in. And then I want you to turn with me, please, to the book of 1 Samuel, other end of your Bible. Go leaving from leaving the book of Titus and going all the way to the book of 1 Samuel. A young man destined for greatness. His name was David. Came to be the king of Israel. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel the prophet, How long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. And go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, and watch this line, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Not just any king, not a king for the people, but God is saying out of all the humans on the face of the earth, I have picked this one young man to be king over my people, but he is a king as unto me, a king for myself. He is my choice to be the king. Skip down to verse 7 or 6. When the sons of, Israel, sons of, of, of Jesse gathered, uh, when they entered, verse 6, he looked at Eliab, Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. As if the Lord is saying, I've picked this one out, this son of Jesse, I've picked this one out for myself because I have already checked out his heart. I have looked at his heart, and his heart is a heart that's toward me. David would be called the man, you remember, after God's own heart. Pretty strong statements of affirmation. David's anointed. Look at verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. And behold, he's tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said to Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went back to his place and David went back to serving his dad, and then eventually 
was taken to Saul, the king's own court, and he served Saul there. And then you remember the story of how the Philistine armies were gathered in battle array against the Israelites, and Philistines put forth this nine and a half foot tall giant named Goliath. Goliath. Yes, you have read your Bibles. Thank you. That's good. <laughs> nine and a half feet tall, and he would come out morning and evening, and he would taunt the armies of Israel, mock them. David shows up being sent by his dad to check on the brothers who were in the army. And while he's there checking on them, Goliath makes one of his appearances. And something just goes off in David's spirit. That can't be. That can't be allowed. He's speaking against our God. He's speaking against our people. That can't happen. He ends up volunteering to go and fight Goliath. You remember the story? They try to talk him out of it, try to put him in Saul's armor, and that doesn't fit. All he's got is just his, his shepherd's bag, his staff probably, and a sling. He had taken out a bear and he had taken out a lion defending the sheep as a shepherd, and that was the only weapon he was familiar with. Crazy kid, crazy kid, crazy teenager. And David said to the Philistine, as the two merged, nine and a half feet tall, little bitty squirt. <laughs> then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've taunted. This day, the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by, sword, deliver by sword or by spear for the battle belongs to the Lord's. The battle is God's and he will give you into our hands. You know, so he just, he says that and takes off running, doing his sling, lets that thing go, hits Goliath right in the head, knocks him out and he runs over, grabs his sword, cuts Goliath's head off with Goliath's own sword. Thank you very much. All the, all the armies of Israel, all the troops, his brothers being among them, are shocked and thrilled all at the same time. All of a sudden, now they won the battle. David killed the giant, but they won the battle. And everybody's running and chasing, and a great victory happened on that day. A great victory. God was all over David. Power, authority, a mission. He was on it, and God was on him. Only problem was Saul, the king, grew jealous of David's popularity. It came to be known to Saul that David had been picked as his replacement, that it wasn't going to be Saul's dynasty. The dynasty was going to stop with Saul, and it would start over again with David because of sins that Saul had committed. And so for years... David was hunted like, a, like an animal. He was, he was tracked down like, like, like a dog tracking a, cray, a, a, a quarry. And, and he, he survived miraculously again and again and again. God just took care of him. The Lord fed him and clothed him and watered him, protected him. And during all those years, the Lord was making his presence known to David. David didn't have much but he had his God, and he knew that as long as he had God, had the Lord with him, that he would be taken care of, even though Saul was doing everything he could to try to catch him and kill him. Finally, the day came when Saul was killed on the mountain of Gilboa by enemy armies. The people knew that David had, 
was selected by the Lord to be the king. So they came to him and they elevated him from, from the vagabond running and hiding in caves and, and, and living like a wild animal, taking him from there straight into and put a crown on his head. And he's now, he's now the king of Judah and would become later the king of Israel, the northern tribes as well. God's man, the man after God's own heart, mighty warrior, great worshiper, so much so that 2 Samuel 7, Nathan the prophet is sent to David to speak these words to David from the Lord. Verse 8, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pastures, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And then look at this statement. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth, the Lord says. Verse 11, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Verse 18. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? Verse 20. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. God makes a covenant. God makes a pledge to this young King David. God says, I will, not I might or I could. I will make your name a great name like the names of the great men on the earth. And I will cause your lineage to be sustained and to flourish such that your kingdom will endure forever. That has to be linking David's line with the coming of Jesus the Messiah. There was a prophecy that was foreshadowing the coming of God to the human race. And that one would come as a son of David. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Less than four chapters later, in chapter 11, Verse 1, then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab, his commanding general, and his servants, the armies with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed, walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. 
And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. At that point, this man who had been picked by God himself to be king, whose heart had been thoroughly examined and known by the God from whom there can be no secrets kept. The one to whom forever kinds of promises were made specifically to him. We find that chosen man, that called man, now working within his own brain a plan to cover his tracks. He sends word Joab to have Uriah sent back so that the man would have a night with his wife and it would be known to all the husband's child instead of an adulterer's child. Didn't work. Uriah wouldn't do that. He felt such a loyalty to his, his troops in the field and a loyalty to his king that he slept just outside the door of the king's house and refused to go home. On more than one occasion, David finally tried to get him drunk, thinking then maybe he'd go. It didn't work. So after none of those things worked, look at verse 14. Now in the morning... David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. Four out of the ten, this choice-picked man of God committed in one series. Enter the mercy of God. The mercy of God often begins with a blazing, shining light. The mercy of God begins with light. Then the Lord, after a year or so had passed, the baby had been born, the baby had died. Chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is the same prophet who delivered God's covenant promises four chapters, five chapters earlier. Remember that a forever kind of relationship between David's line and the Lord. Nathan now is sent to deliver another word. And he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, the rich one, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat out of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And this little ewe lamb was like a daughter to him. Nathan continues his story. Now a traveler came to the rich man 
and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. And it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you, to, gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would, have been add, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. That's the first time David even had a clue that anybody knew what he had done. But God didn't sleep. God saw it all, heard it all, knew it all. And he sends this beacon of light as the first great encroachment of mercy into David's bondage and misery. You've struck down Uriah the Hittite. You've taken his wife to be your wife, and you killed him with the sword of the, Am of the, sword of the son of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So the child would die after this. You did it in secret. But I will expose this before all Israel, the prophet would say. The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. Guilty, called, chosen, incredible promises spoken over him. And yet look at this. Look at where he is. Look at where he came from. Look at what he, what he, in a sense, gave up for just, for just a little bit of pleasure that would haunt him the rest of his life. But was it powerful enough? Was David's sin powerful enough to destroy all of the destiny that God had in mind for him? Isaiah 55 one more time, we've read this before. Seek the Lord, this is verse six. Seek the Lord, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Now look at this. Let the wicked forsake his way. Stop walking in that way. Wicked, stop walking that way. Quit it, stop it, cut it out, end it. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. For he will have compassion on him. And to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. Pardon who? The wicked man or woman. The unrighteous man or woman. Not the goody two-shoes who had never done much. But the worst of the worst and the longest of the long. You say to that wicked man, just turn around. You're headed for certain death. The wages of sin is death. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's only going to get worse. 
not better. Turn around. The blast of light to expose the true condition of the deception that was ruling in David's mind. The blast of light came from Nathan just laying it out there. That was mercy. Hallelujah. We had never heard another word about David if God hadn't in his mercy exposed him. Now, I'm probably looking out on the face of folks that say, when I got exposed, it was the worst day of my life. I didn't see how I could ever survive it. But you look back on it now and you realize it was one of the best things God ever did for you. That you were caught. But see, here's what happens. When you get caught, when the shaft of light of the mercy of God exposes us, we have a choice. We can deny it. We can blame it on somebody else. We can ignore it. Or we can embrace it. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. In other words, Nathan, it's true. Everything you've said is true. I've sinned against the Lord. What also was David doing? He was doing an Isaiah 55 pivot is what he was doing. He was turning to the Lord. Yes. And he would find that the Lord would abundantly pardon him. Yes, he would. Not just a little bit of pardon. But a lot of part. Then we find Psalm 51. David writes at the end of this year, after having been called out by Nathan the prophet. You see, you can, you can get called out and try to discredit the messenger, try to say, oh, they don't know what they're talking about, when you know what they're saying is exactly the truth. Or if you don't know it, there's probably been somebody else, others trying to say to you, 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 you need to see this, you need to hear this. Something's not right here. It's the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God that's coming and saying, that is the way of death. You keep going that way and it's the way of death. But you turn back to the Lord. And there's freedom. And there's mercy. There's forgiveness there's restoration. There's a future and a hope, and the dreams can still be reconnected with you in the middle of all the bad choices if you let God. God is bigger than your sin if you'll let him be. God is bigger than your sin. God is bigger than the bad choices. God is bigger than the long periods of time of mess-ups. He's bigger than that. Just let him show you, you know? That's what that, let him, let him return to the Lord. Forsake the way Turn back to the Lord and let, then let the Lord by his mercy rewrite the script of your life. He loves doing that. Some of the greatest characters, including David, Abraham, on and on, Joe, on and on he could go. Moses, Saul, Paul. Some of the greatest characters in your Bible were rescued by the mercy of God. They weren't perfect. They didn't do everything right. But it was because God loved them enough to powerfully impact their lives and expose their sin and give them a choice. And they turned and they came out and the rest is history. And we read about what they did and said in this book. The only perfect man in this book was Jesus himself. Every other character, male, female, were imperfect tools. If there had been no mercy, there would be little human involvement character involvement in the scripture other than just one misstep and sin after another. Psalm 51, David writing, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Another way to translate that multisyllable word is just the two-syllable word mercy. Be gracious 
to me, O God, according to your mercy, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my what? Transgression, my sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That is, a, that is a nicer word than the word which really brings forth the color of the meaning in the Hebrew. Wash me thoroughly from my perversion. Now, some folks just call that an affair. David understood it as a sickness of his soul. It was an opportunity. He took advantage of the opportunity. There were some consequences he wouldn't have particularly preferred. He could have just written it off as just an affair, just a one-night deal. But when the mercy of the Lord, that blast of light exposing what he did, he saw what it was. It wasn't just an affair. It was a violation of the heart of God. He took another man's wife as his own. And it cost him dearly. But even there, adultery was not the unpardonable sin. Can I get a witness? I mean a bigger witness than that. We've got some more folks who've been there than that. Adultery was not the unpardonable sin. Murder would be proven not to be the unpardonable sin. Neither coveting, neither lying. Costly. But when he saw what it was, when he embraced the light, mercy began to reign in his life. There was hope again. There was the lifting of the junk that he was trying to live in the middle of. It was being taken from him. He would say later in the song, Lord, restore those bones which you have broken. So that the bones that have been broken will rejoice. He's talking about his conscience bones, his Moral bones, they were broken. Heal me from the inside out. Rescue me from my perversion. I've got a perverted brain that would take me to sleep with another man's wife, try to cover the tracks by having him murdered, thinking that some way or another nobody's going to know. How in the world can it be? That someone so close to God could find himself in a situation like this for a season in his life so far away from God. But folks, if it can happen to David, then not a male in here it can't happen to, including this one. Or a female in this room. David would say prophetically, Lord, you knew me. You know me. You know what you've got in response to the covenant spoken to him. You know me. How could you say such things of such honor and such length about me? Because you know me. Throughout that Psalm 51, David is expressing the Isaiah 55 pivot. He's turning back to the Lord. He's turning back to the Lord. Did he divorce Bathsheba? No. was an indication of repentance on David's part, something that you would think, well, if, if that was sin, that was wrong, then why didn't he do this, that, other? Then you got to take that up with God. Don't have an answer for that. This is even further down the road of God's ways being higher than our ways. And the, in, the, in the context and the setting specifically of the mercy of God. Out of all the sons, David had multiple wives. They had multiple children, sons and daughters. Out of all of the ones that were picked to be the specific continuation of his lineage, it was Solomon who was born to Bathsheba. Why not another wife? Why that one? I'm going to tell you why. Because God's ways are higher than our ways. 
He forgives, and he wants there to be lessons of how he forgives that are etched in granite in the Scripture. David sinned. Bathsheba was a victim. Murder occurred. Wrong happened. But mighty is the mercy of God. Mighty is the grace of God. Glorious are his ways and his wisdom beyond finding out. It's about the time you get to thinking, that promise the Lord spoke to me, that dream I had, that's something I wished for, that I thought God was saying, but then look what I did. You, you take what you did, and you try to stack that up against what David did, and you see who comes out with the short end of the stack. I dare say there's not anybody in here that came close to that. And if some way or another, God forgave David. God restored him, did not take the throne from him, though there were seasons of conflict and war within his own household. It was, we've talked about that last week, about the hard heads. The Lord has a way of keeping a hard head from messing up again by causing there to be things, allowing there to be things that would, that would cause nausea to come up in the stomach at the very thought of even thinking about that thing again. So there was trouble within David's own household. But the trouble was there as an expression of the mercy of God in a sense, but it did not negate the promises of God with regard to David. He went on to rule over Israel. He went on to write a whole bunch more Psalms after Psalm 51 that are in your Bible right now. The scripture in the book of Psalms, a good bit of it was written by a man who had blown it to the degree that we just described. So what does that say? That says great is the mercy of God. Great is his ability to forgive and to restore and to pick up and use again, even when we think we've blown it without any change for the better. Let me read you one last Psalm. And this, from David's own words, this one was written when he's an old man. The season with Bathsheba and those dark days are in the past. Psalm 37, verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. You mean somebody who has committed those kinds of sins can still have confidence that one more time he can trust in the Lord and it won't be, it won't be a wasted attempt? David writes this with great confidence as if he's summarizing the various seasons of his life. As a young boy before king, before he was king, as a, as, as a hunted competitor, in, at least in Saul's eyes during those years, then as a young king, then as an older king, then this season with Bathsheba and the kingdom is taken from him by Absalom and then it's restored and then he lives these last years in some measure of peace. But through all of that, he's saying, and I'm telling you, folks, he's saying that this back again to some of your hearts who've given up because you feel like, or you've lost heart because you feel like you've blown it so bad. Here is a truth again. Trust in the Lord. You trust him. You can trust him. He'll honor it. You can trust him again. Trust him. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. And then look at Psalm 4. So 37, 4. How could he write this? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You, you, talk about, you talk about the Lord's heart to abundantly pardon. Look at what he's saying. This is a murderer, an adulterer, a liar, a coveter. You delight yourself in the Lord. Change whatever hasn't been right in that regard, but start again to make him your joy. 
to make him your delight. And here's what he will do in return, even guilty of the variety of sins listed. He will give you the desires of your heart. Could it really be that the real, true God in heaven delights more in mercy than he does in judgment? Could it be that the greatest pleasure to the heart of God is when that one lost sheep gets found, when that one runaway boy comes home? And he put it like that. The angels in heaven break out into a celebration of one who has been away who comes back. And then he says, in 23, verse 23. Look at this, and I'll finish with this. Steps of a man are established by the Lord. And he delights in his way. The Lord delights in the way of a man. But look at 24. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. You read Psalm 37 in the light of Psalm 51 and there's just a world of emotion packed into verse 24. When he falls and David fell, when he falls, he will not be hurled headlong. He will not be let go of. He will not be the victim of a bottomless pit. Why? 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 Because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. There's still hope. Do you hear it? There's still hope no matter what, because of the mercy of God. When the scripture will say that Jesus took our sins in his body on the cross, he was punished for our sins. He received the guilt of our sins. And when we by faith put our trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross, we receive the forgiveness of our sins. Folks, listen, we receive the forgiveness of our sins that we know about, that are in the past, but we receive the forgiveness of our sins that we haven't even done yet. Or Jesus would have to come back and die again to cover what's going to happen in 2017. Am I correct? He died once for all. That's why it can say he forgives like no man forgives. He pardons like no human can pardon. He knows what he got when he got you. He knew what David would do when he still spoke the promise to David. David, this pledge is forever. I will make your name a great name like the names of those who are on the earth, great men on the earth, even though he knew four chapters later that dark episode of his life would happen. Let me tell you something, folks. God delights to prove to you that he's not a little God, that there is nothing bigger than he is, and there is no sin bigger than he is. Many times the issue is not about whether or not God can forgive us but whether or not we can forgive ourselves. Embrace his mercy. Embrace his mercy. If he says you have been forgiven, receive that into the depth of your heart and expect that he does have ways of restoring the years that the locust has eaten. He does have ways of giving us a future and a hope, 
not just the expectation of calamity and destruction. There is still hope, no matter what, because of the mercy of God. 